Welcome back, you're listening to Incitri Science, where each episode we pick the brains of a different scientist and get to know the details of exactly what it is they do. I'm your host, James O'Hemlin, and this episode I'm joined by herpetologist, conservation biologist, and champion of all things frog, Dr. Jody Rowley. Jody, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. No, it, your name is pretty much synonymous with that frog lady. No, right? Yeah, I, I, I've now gone to Frog Lady. It was Frog Girl, but I've definitely <laughs> gone to Frog Lady now. <laughs> really? When did that happen? That uh, a- yeah, probably a while ago now. <laughs> probably a decade. <laughs> I mean, it is, I'm always interested in people that have a very tax on specific research focus. Is this something that you fell into? Is it a choice? Were you a frog nut as a kid? Um, I wish I was a frog nut as a kid, but I was mm. a very city person. I grew up in the city. My parents didn't really take me camping. Mm. Uh, and so it wasn't actually until I sort of somewhat fell into environmental science at university and then started going out and then started realising that when you go out in streams at night, there are frogs around. Mm. Uh, fell in love with frogs just from a creature perspective, huge eyeballs, toe pads, like what more could you want? Yeah. And simultaneously, I realised that they were in a lot of trouble. Mm. So it was kind of the combination of these things are amazing. I can't believe they're real. I haven't really been exposed to these as a kid and now I'm falling in love with them. And at the same time, this is the time in history where frogs are being wiped off the face of the earth at a very rapid pace so that maybe I can actually be useful here. Mm. And so university was really this time where you were introduced to science in general is that right? Yeah, I, I used to ride a horse occasionally through mm. Kringai Chase National Park and, and well, the edge of Kringai Chase National Park. And that was sort of my only real exposure to the bush and to mm. other animals. And actually, it's quite interesting on a horse. Other wildlife tends to think that you're part of the horse, that you're a herbivore and not that threatening, as opposed mm. to if you're walking along like a human. Uh, and so I, I'd see quite a bit of wildlife and I really started caring about it in that way. But it wasn't until university where I met a whole bunch more, I suppose, like-minded people yeah. and people that we went hiking and walking and, and actually went out at night with a light on your head. It's not something I grew up doing. <laughs> you know, you often don't realise what's around you until you get out there and, and just, yeah, realised all these critters were everywhere mm. and it was just absolutely amazing being part of it and not kind of living a little bit isolated from nature, which is, I think, what we tend to do on mostly a daily basis unless we are getting out there. Yeah. I mean, you've dived into the deep end a bit coming being a city kid, then going doing frog field work, it's probably one of the least glamorous types of field work, right? <laughs> yeah, the frog biologists tend to work in you know the monsoon season, the pouring rain in the middle of the night, mm. in the mud. Frogs like water and they tend to breed when it's raining. So it is, you know, particularly my work in Southeast Asia, all the other biologists that work on primates and mm. other mammals and, and botany, it's the time of the year when they get the heck out of the forest, <laughs> where I'm going into the forest. I'm, yeah. you know, the one that's going to be growing fungus on my clothes and being in pouring rain in a hammock for weeks on end. That's muddy and it's mosquito country and leech country and all that stuff. Yeah, but somehow the frogs are worth it. I turn into a bit of a princess when I'm in the city. Like right now at the Australian Museum, if it's raining at lunchtime, no, I'm right. I'll just stay here, thanks. Don't feel like getting wet. But if there's frogs out there, then I don't mind so much. Yeah. Well, since you mentioned going to Southeast Asia, this is work you did a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, so I guess right after my PhD was around the time I realised that Southeast Asia was a real biodiversity sort of black hole in terms of our knowledge of frogs Mm. and how they were doing. And it was 
a few years before I finished my PhD that the Global Amphibian Assessment came out and that was the first time that we'd had a look at how amphibians around the world were doing and that was the time when we really realised mm. how much trouble amphibians were in. And at that time it was about one third of all amphibians being threatened with extinction. Now of course it's worse, mm. but that was a real call to action for me and the fact that there was this whole area, the sort of Indo-Burma hotspot, which was Cambodia, Vietnam, Myanmar. Um, this was a black hole in, mm. in terms of our knowledge. We didn't even know how many species they were. And an opening came up around about the same time after my PhD and I decided to move to Cambodia. So I spent a couple of years living in Vietnam and Cambodia, mm. working for Conservation International, uh, NGO and spent most of that in the field. So I would be in the field for a month in China, then I would be in Vietnam for three weeks, then a month in Cambodia in the field, and just doing a lot of field work, finding a lot of frogs and realizing pretty quickly that it was very difficult for me to do ecology or conservation work on things when we didn't even know what they were. They didn't have a name, they were mm. unknown species. And I decided that that was a, a perhaps the most pressing problem that we had. The first step at conservation of the amphibians was figuring out how many species they are. And then the next step, of course, is figuring out how they're doing and then prioritizing our conservation mm. efforts. So that became my mission for the last sort of 10, 11 years. So adding to the environmental challenges of frog field work, you're also adding being a non-English speaking country and logistical difficulties of that area, right? Yeah, it was it was definitely a challenge. And I think my, you know, coming from a city background, my mother didn't <laughs> expect her only child to mm. not be working locally, but all of a sudden moving to Cambodia and climbing yeah. a mountain with, you know, 12 Vietnamese rangers looking for frogs. Mm. And to her credit, she did not say one bad thing about <laughs> me doing that. And I always tried to call her on the satellite phone occasionally. So it, it definitely, particularly going from one country to another, mm. I would you wake up and not know what language I was meant to be saying good morning in <laughs> because I like wait where am I again but it was an amazing experience yeah. and there's no quicker way to make friends than to spend weeks on end in the monsoon season with them up to your ankles in mud <laughs> looking for frogs so thankfully I've made some amazing friends and yeah. colleagues that I've been working with for the last decade so I've been very lucky. And I guess your mum can't complain anymore. You've, you've fulfilled your daughterly duties for a lifetime because <laughs> you named a species after her, right? I did, I did. <laughs> yes, uh, she has Helen's flying frog, Rackaforest mm. Helenae, named after her. So about um, 2009 was when we actually found this bright apple green frog that's mm. about as big as the palm of your hand sitting in the lowland forests of Vietnam on a, on a log. And I actually wasn't sure it was something new until I then, I think the next year, went to northern Vietnam and found the frog that I thought it was. Oh. And then suddenly realized, wait a minute, if this is that, what was yeah. that? <laughs> and so it was a little bit of a process and we described it, I think, in 2011 or 12. And that was around about the same time my mum was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Mm. And at the time, I, I guess I thought, and I still think the most important things in life are your friends and family. And yeah. if that's going to make her happy, I don't care if people think I'm a wuss naming <laughs> a frog in her <laughs> honour. Although it did um, get a bit of media and some of the media was, I, I remember thinking, you know, a lot of people saying, oh, what, a frog, you know, a slimy thing. Your mum must not be that happy with it. And, oh, it's got flappy <laughs> forearms. It was one of the headings. I'm like, come on, man. It's this beautiful green it's not that it reminded flying you of frog. Your mom. Exactly. <laughs> but she absolutely loves it. She's got it on her screen 
screensaver. She's got it on her phone. She's been in hospital. They, she, the nurses end up printing out pictures for it and sticking <laughs> at it. She has a Twitter account just to stalk me. And her sort of line is, I have a frog named after me. So I, I think I made her happy, yeah. <laughs> all right. There's never any chance for her to go and see it at all? I'm hoping, I'm hoping that there, it would be so great. There's... One of the bad things about this frog it, for its survival is that it lives in really accessible places. Mm. So the lowland forest near Ho Chi Minh City. All right. But that would be quite easy. So my mum won't have to climb up a mountain for mm. three days to try and find this frog. She can actually drive right up to the ponds where we know that it breeds. Mm. So I'm hoping I can lure her over there. I can't imagine seeing her with these, <laughs> these frogs. And it's, it's only about three or four hours drive from the middle of Ho Chi Minh City to find these guys. So hopefully no one day. I know. <laughs> no, no, no excuses. It's a, it is a long way to look for a frog, but they are amazing species as yeah. well. So they're, they're quite beautiful. So have you any uh, measure or, or kind of different frog species you've named or discovered? I think it's about 25 species right. that I've been involved in discovering or at least describing. Mm. Most of them, we were the ones, you know, finding it in the field, my colleagues and I, and that's like the amazing thing. Sometimes I've also helped others with describing the frogs, whether mm. I've been helping with the DNA or because I am very obsessed with a type of small brown frog called an Asian leaf litter <laughs> frog. And everyone else is like, oh gosh, get Jody to help us with this because it's this small, <laughs> tiny brown frog that's really hard. Um, so, so far it's it's been only one Australian frog uh, that I've been involved in discovering mm. and, and the rest, most of them in Vietnam. Mm. So you're saying that this is your essentially contribution to conserving these animals because we just simply don't know they're there. Is this a, a, you know, a shining light for the future of taxonomy and those sorts of, I don't know, maybe old school science philosophies because it's really important that we actually know what things are? And Yeah, I, I think it's step one and I think that's the difference from the past. So I'm Step one is knowing that they exist and step mm. two is then figuring out how they're doing. And mm. so I've been very keen not to just describe a species in a scientific journal behind a paywall and leave it at that, especially in because in the areas that I'm working at in particular, most of the species that we're discovering are actually likely to be very threatened with extinction mm. due to habitat loss. Most of the frogs in Vietnam are restricted to ever good evergreen forest and habitat loss is happening at a very, very fast rate, mm. even within protected areas. So. Mm. There's always been that drive for me. It's a bit of a race against time to try and find these things uh, and then figure out how they're doing. So here at the Australian Museum, I'm responsible for um, and my colleagues working here are uh, assessing all the species from mainland Southeast Asia, all the amphibian species. So mm. we describe the species and other people describe species and then we assess how they're doing. So we get all the information that's known about them, we figure out their threats, we map their distributions and then we assess whether or not they're endangered uh, or critically endangered or any of the sort of official threat categories on the IUCN red list of threatened yeah. species, which is the global kind of list. So we're now at a point, I guess, after about 10 years of me doing a lot of field work and a bunch of colleagues um, and students doing a whole bunch of fieldwork discovering frogs. For example, in Vietnam, we now have a much more accurate idea of how many species they are, but there are obviously still many more to discover. But now we're actually know which ones are the most threatened. So mm. um, many of the species I've described are already now listed as endangered. And 
unfortunately a couple of species are now known to be critically endangered in, mm. in Vietnam and that's the result of all, all of us working together to try and figure this out. So it means we can prioritise our conservation. We can't save every patch of forest, but we mm. need to know which frog species are under the greatest threat, which areas have the most frog biodiversity that's found nowhere else and try and work to conserve these areas. So it's all about making, or finally, being able to make informed conservation decisions and, mm. and action on the ground. So she next week I'll be packing my bags before next week or at least before we get on the plane uh, and <laughs> flying to Vietnam and going up Mount Fancy Pan which is the highest mountain in Indochina right. and trying to for the third year running um, working on I guess starting the action plan that we've developed for these two critically endangered frog species right. so uh, working with the national park working with local institutions to try and actually take it from describing one of the species uh, that's now critically endangered Botsford's leaf flutter frog I mm. was the one that was sitting in the mud and found this little dude in the first place and now I'm trying to make sure that it sticks around on top of this mountain and, and it doesn't disappear forever. Mm. So you, you mentioned going beyond just naming things and cataloguing things. I get the impression from talking to museum scientists that that's kind of, you know, it's the bread and butter of a museum scientist is the sort of biodiversity surveys and naming and cataloging. Is there much of an opportunity to get more into the ecology and behavior and life history stuff? Certainly, and, and certainly it can be a massive part of even just discovering the yeah. species. So using all that kind of ecological information to help confirm that it is a new species as well. I mean, historically, taxonomies relied on morphology, so the distance between its nostrils and how webbed its mm. feet were. Uh, it's changed in recent decades to incorporate DNA, mm -hmm. and so that's sort of a regular part of our work. And for frogs, we're lucky in that they call, and each species has a different call, so we're now able to incorporate their calls and bioacoustic analysis into it. But um, I'm really interested in other ways that we might help discover these cryptic species, these frogs that look very similar to each other because a small brown frog often works. Why would you change? Um, <laughs> so looking at things like behaviour, pheromones, mm. really sort of microhabitats and ways that we actually might get further evidence that we're missing some species that, yeah. you know, they've got great ways of identifying each other and living in space. And so I think that's certainly the next level as well. So I've got students that are working on ecology projects on some of the frogs mm. and, and it is the logical sort of flow of things. And I think there is a lot of room at museums to, if, if not have that being the primary focus of your work, but mm. definitely including it and supporting the work of others doing that. Yeah. And I think it has to be in this, I mean, conservation in general, yeah. I think is at the heart of everything that museum scientists are doing. Mm. Uh, and species description is, is just the first step in that. Mm. A very, very important one. And it's something that universities and a lot of other institutions don't do. You know, they don't have the collections here and they don't have that focus on species yeah. discovery. So. so you're here now at the Australian Museum. How long have you been here now after your stint overseas? I've been based here since 2008 again, mm. so a fair while. Recently in a new position as curator here. But I have been spending time going backwards and forwards mm. and lucky enough to still keep uh, a toe in Vietnam, as it were, <laughs> and, and still get back there and work on an, yeah. an area that is still really important. But spending more and more time in, in New South Wales, yeah. particularly. Well, you're hunting for lots of Australian frogs now, particularly the peppered tree frog which I keep calling the peppermint tree frog, but that's, that's <laughs> totally wrong. <laughs> You're going to ruin me now. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I made, made an issue when I Googled it and I couldn't figure out whether it's just pictures of Fred or Frogs coming up. So it's having a peppermint instead of peppered. <laughs> Tell us about the pepper tree frog. <laughs> oh, I have. I, I've been spending a fair bit of time looking for a small peppered, called peppered. And the other one I get is people thinking it's like delicious with pepper. Um, <laughs> a, a peppered tree frog named so because of its sort of spotted, sort of marbled appearance. It's about yeah. two centimetres in body length. And it was a frog that was found on the New England Tablelands in northern New South Wales in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't been seen since. So it was found then and it was found in quite a few places in five main sites throughout the New England Tablelands yeah. in the Eastern Falls country, which is the most rugged, you know, granite, rocky, gorges, waterfalls. And it's called Eastern Falls for a reason when you get to the edge of the sort of, <laughs> the, it just goes straight down into the valleys. Um, and it's, it's beautiful, rugged country, but makes it like looking for a needle in a haystack when you're mm. looking for a two centimetre frog. Uh, so I, it hasn't been seen for a very long time. People have looked for it, but we're really looking for it. So we need to figure out if this frog is still around mm. somewhere and is one of Australia's most threatened frogs, if, or if it has become extinct. Mm. And so we spent uh, something like 80 nights looking for it last spring and summer, climbing okay. up and down gorges. And a lot of the, the habitat of the frog or the areas that both we know that it occurred and we think that it does occur is in private land. So a lot of that has been, at the start, I was very worried, you know, we're going to be able to get access to private land. Mm. And it's been absolutely amazing. So the local landholders have just opened their gates to us and we've been going up and down these amazing streams looking Mm. for this frog. And unfortunately, we have not found it yet, but I will be back there in October going up and down different streams and Mm. hopefully finding it. So I, I... I'm really hoping that it's still around. I'm really hoping that we haven't lost this little guy. Um, but, you know, it's it's likely that the amphibian chytrid fungus, which was the disease that wiped out a lot of frogs, especially stream-dwelling frogs, especially mm. stream-dwelling frogs at elevation, which is sort of ticking all the boxes, yeah, unfortunately, yeah. for the peppered tree frog, uh, declined a lot. But there are lots of instances that give me hope of people rediscovering frogs even frogs that have been thought to be extinct for decades and it'll just be one stream (laughs) often you know one little bit of have habitat where the frogs are still there and this is there's ideas that maybe these are the slightly drier slightly warmer places that the Mm. amphibian chytrid fungus which is is a type of fungus uh, can't persist anymore or the frog just has that little bit of an edge it just gets a little Mm. bit warmer and and can cope with the disease a bit more so we're trying to focus this year on these slightly lower elevations, slightly warmer, slightly drier, hopefully, spots, and maybe we'll uncover the pocket of the peppered tree frog. So what's spurred this search? If it hasn't been seen in 40 years, why now? Well, what, what's inspired this search? The whole search was inspired by a grant uh, from the Environmental Trust, the mm-hmm. Saving Our Species, um, and, and that was to resolve the data deficiency of three threatened frogs in Mm -hmm. New South Wales. A peppered tree frog was one of them. The mountain frog, Floria kandagungan, which is up on the border and lives in these sort of Gondwanan rainforest seeps in the mud uh, Mm. and was very poorly known. So we're working on that also in conjunction with Southern Cross University. And the green-thighed frog, Latoria brevi palmata, which is a very frustrating frog to work on (laughs) and is, is data deficient for a reason because this species is essentially like a desert frog in that it only comes out after it pours with rain even though it lives in 
the sort of wettest part of you know one of the wettest parts of Australia along the east mm. coast from Queensland through New South Wales it's it comes out a few nights a year is the only time you ever see this frog so okay. it's really hard to study and and it's it's a struggle <laughs> finding them um, and unfortunately they occur in the kind of area that's getting developed uh, mm. a lot by because us humans really like the east coast of Australia too um, <laughs> so we're working on those three species but the the other reason that makes it a really good time to look for the pepper tree frog is because we're seeing in a lot of the species that declined on the New England tablelands and in other areas they're actually starting to bounce back so things like the stuttering frog was mm. in really really no, low numbers uh, for a very long time after this sort of declines happened in the 80s and now is really common in a lot of these streams which is really mm. fantastic news so something shifted maybe the frogs have got a little bit of resistance or something like that but I think now is is potentially the time so I, th mm. I think it, everything's lined up fingers crossed at what point do you decide should you not find pepper tree frogs at what point do you decide to stop looking this will be the last season and we'll, we'll stop looking after this spring and summer. So we are gathering a lot of other information on the frogs mm. of the area. So it's not, it's not a completely nothing after a long night survey. Mm. But uh, we're noticing that the frog communities have definitely changed over time. Okay. So the frogs that were found at the same time as the pepper tree frog was found, there's a lot of frogs that are missing and frogs that weren't um, picked up very much are now really common. So things have definitely changed in the communities there. And we're also swabbing frogs for disease. So mm -hmm. seeing whether or not that they are still being impacted upon by the amphibian chytrid fungus. Yeah. Uh, and just checking out some amazing properties and mapping the biodiversity of the yeah. region. So uh, should you not find it, does that mean we officially say extinct? What does that mean? Ah, that's a tough one, isn't it? So it depends on the rules, but it's, it, as you know, it's incredibly hard to prove that something is not there. Yeah, um, the, you can prove a negative. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So we can, all we can say is that we've put in X amount of hours, covered X amount of streams, and yeah. it's a lot. Uh, and and we have not found it, and we think that it is is very likely not there. Mm. Um, but we would still hope to be proven wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but hopefully we, we are able to find find the frog this season. I mean, do you ever, 80 days into searching for them, do you regret picking such elusive animals? I mean, <laughs> I, I shouldn't complain because I get that. I, I like the challenge of finding something that might not be there, but eventually you start to regret it, right? I haven't regretted it because it's been an amazing... Okay, so maybe in October where it's really cold at night still, yeah. I might maybe regret it for a few minutes as I'm sitting there waiting for it to get dark and shivering. <laughs> but it's such a beautiful landscape and I so feel so privileged to be spending time up there mm. and in talking to the local people and, and seeing all the cool wildlife that is still around, even if the pepper tree frog yeah. is, is being quite elusive. I mean, one night we were actually on, a, on private property going down this stream and we saw a lyrebird doing a display. We walked a little <laughs> further, we saw rock wallabies. We mm. walked a little further and I almost stood on a platypus. It was so close. I've never seen, <laughs> I, I didn't, wow. my head did not compute what yeah. this thing by my foot was because it just didn't even, I'm like, that's, that's a weird eel, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and you're just like, gosh, this place is still still amazing. And I guess that fills me with a bit of hope that maybe it is still possible as well, yeah. that the frog is still out there. And I have to have hope if I am going to be hiking up and down mm. gorges for <laughs> seven hours a night. <laughs> I mean, how do you convince people to fund these sorts of blue sky 
expeditions? Um, I, I think people realise the value and, and the government certainly, New South Wales government certainly realises the value in solving this once and for all. It is, it is a massive conservation question. Either we do have one of Australia's most endangered frog species or mm. we should be allocating our time and resources elsewhere. So we need to figure out what the case is so that we can then figure out what needs to be done or not done. Yeah. All right. Well, since you're the Australian frog, the frog lady, I want to try something potentially good podcast material, potentially stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so I have the uh, Frogs of Australia app, which I'm sure you helped develop for the museum. And I want to see how good you are at oh, no. picking oh, your frogs. Oh no, the frog call test. <laughs> Pick calls. it from New South Wales. Pick it from New South Wales. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll, we'll just see how we go. So I'll, I'll start with something that maybe is easy. That's uh, Pseudophrony, uh, one of the brood frogs. Yeah. Pseudophrony coriacea, maybe? Red back toadlet? Something that I would know. Uh, red crowned? Red crowned. Red crowned. They're very similar. Good. To be fair. <laughs> <laughs> it was a brood frog. I got that right. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about. They're pretty cool frogs. Yeah, that's one I'd probably say that for all frogs, though. But they <laughs> they are pretty cool. They will behave. One of the two frog calls that I actually know. <laughs> uh, Little right. squelches. Yeah, let's try this one. Oh, eastern banjo frog. Good job. <laughs> yeah, that one's a good one. <laughs> Yeah, so a lot of the sort of limited nasties are kind of like bok, bok, or bong, bong. They're, they're a big frog. The striped marsh frog is the version that you get a lot in Sydney, especially, which is uh, more tolerant of humans than the eastern banjo frog. So is that a, is that a pobble bonk? Is so the eastern banjo is also known as the pobble bonk. Okay. Um, and the striped marsh frog, I don't know if it's known as anything else, but the funniest story I heard about them was someone lived next to a golf course, uh, sorry, a tennis court, and the call of the striped marsh frog sounds a lot like a tennis ball being hit. And for a long time, they thought that their, <laughs> that their tennis court next door was haunted because someone was playing <laughs> tennis at night. And really, it was a striped marsh frog. That's a great story. <laughs> I know. I've stolen it from them because it was the best. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right. La last one. I won't torture you anymore. It's like a Nasuto or something. Yeah. Well, they were all a bit similar, those rocket froggy things. The Tori and the a rocket yeah. frog. Good job. They sound a bit like a duck. Oh, you're just... <laughs> <laughs> My original plan was to find a frog field guide and read you the calls phonetically oh, and see if you could do that. That's a good one. But that would have been even more torturous, well, I'm yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, you can... Yeah, I've toyed with that idea of trying to define frog calls into like the the squelches, the creakers, the you know you can do that within certain groups of frogs. You know, yeah. Euperolia, you can kind of divide into. It. But once you start getting to the whole complement of frogs, and because like some of those frogs had two different types of calls, and that's mm. when it can get confusing as well. Because they're if they're in um, a high density and there's a lot of males calling near each other, they'll throw in more of a territorial component yeah, of right. the call. So sometimes the first part will be "Hello, girl." Mm. which is what male frogs are calling to attract girls and then the second part will be 
go away boys. Yeah. Um, and so if there's more boys around, sometimes they'll just really get heavy on those go away boys calls <laughs> as well. So that's when you get things that are different. Man, I failed on that. My brain's not working today. Well, I mean, I'm still at a point where I walk out in the bush and I go, it's probably a frog. Maybe a cricket. I don't know. <laughs> that is hard, and it's 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 easier in Australia. Like if you you've got a lot of experience with frog calls, but particularly when we're going to a new patch of forest in Vietnam where no one's ever sort of been before, mm. we we potentially have undescribed species. I've been recording something and very much not been sure if it's a frog or a cricket, yeah. and I have found that it's a frog, and I've described that as a new species. But at the same time, uh, I have also recorded crickets before. So yeah, right. <laughs> it's, not, it's not always that. I'm like, you know what? I'm really not sure if this is a cricket or a frog. I don't know. And you're like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I just recorded a cricket for no good reason. But um, yeah, and in the same sense, I've had people telling me to stop wasting my time crawling around on, on the leaf litter looking for a, a frog because it's a cricket and it was a frog. <laughs> so there are, there are a lot of frogs that do sound like crickets. And, and if you're not familiar with every single one of them, sometimes yeah. it's better to be safe than sorry. I mean, frogs are pretty hard to find, so the calls are going to be important. Yeah, de depending. Um, the, the hardest ones to find are the ones that call from under leaf litter or even under the ground. Oh. And that's possibly the only way you're going to find them. The one thing that you can do is you can call, um, you can call back to kind of um, make them call at you if you can do the call well so for um as in playing calls or just standing just in the bush doing tripping? it and sometimes you can even just yell hello frog or with red, red crown toadlets if you walk along the sort of forest sometimes and just make moderately approach like moderately Black frog call them, noises yeah. like eh, eh, you know and <laughs> it also helps maybe other people might not go near you because they think you're crazy as you're walking through the forest at night um then they will can't resist it and mm. they will call back at you and then you can figure out where they are even if they weren't going to be calling that night anyway if if they hear you calling at them or doing something mm. that sounds a bit like that then so in the case of like the pepper tree frog, do we know what it sounds like? Can we listen for them? Unfortunately not. Uh, the call was never recorded. Oh. They were heard calling, but it was one of these descriptions, which is not particularly uh, <laughs> revealing. And we, we think they belong to a group of frogs where all of their calls are a little bit similar. Mm -hmm. And so we can know that particularly that we think that they would be uh, related to uh, the cascade tree frog, Latoria pisoniana. And these guys um, have a, a kind of a and, mm. and so we think uh, that if we hear something along those lines that maybe we'd be lucky. But we've thought about putting call recorders and things out, but because they live in such fast flowing streams, most of the time you would just yeah. be hearing noise of streams and you'd probably, they're a tiny frog making a relatively quiet call. So you'd need to put one every 10 meters or so along all mm. the streams. <laughs> so that's probably not the most effective method. It's, yeah. it's gonna have to be, uh, climbing up and down themselves <laughs> and and of course also looking for tadpoles so even mm. though the frogs frogs might only be around for a little while you, potentially the tadpoles could be around for um, a long time and we can always just get a little bit of dna from the tail of the tadpole and analyze it and potentially mm. um, discover the tadpole first and that's happened in a lot of instances of yeah, even yeah. undescribed species where people find these tadpoles and wonder what on earth it is mm. producing it, uh, like the, the new species of purple frog that was described uh, just oh, yeah. recently. They've known ab about uh, its, its tadpoles for a long time and, and okay. very curious about what the adults were. But because the adults only come out for two or three weeks a year in the monsoon season when no one else was around, <laughs> then, then it took them a very long time to discover, mm. discover it. Awesome. So October is the, the final... 
Hurrah. Yeah, that's when the final hurrah starts. Mm -hmm. So we'll be all spring and summer, probably to, to around March. And hopefully this final push will be covering a lot of different ground that we've not been to before. And we don't think anyone's been looking for frogs there for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. And we're hoping that we can find the perfect patch. All right. Well, good luck with it. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'll let you get back to it. If anyone wants to find out more about your research, you have a website, right? Yes, I do. And the Australian Museum's got a lot of information mm -hmm. on their website so too. So just Google JodieRowley.com mm -hmm. or something? Frogs, Jodie Frogs, Frogs. You'll Jody probably Frogs. get it, yeah. <laughs> and, and you're a tw Twitter celebrity of, of a sort? I, I do tweet a lot of frogs. So yeah. if you like frogs, then uh, it's just Jodie Rowley. All right, cool. I'll let you get back to it. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. And thank you for listening. You can follow us on Twitter with the handle at In60Science. We're on Facebook and In60Science.com. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us an iTunes review. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.